your host for the next hour of WRGW. Very excited again to be live in the studio. Um, so we got a very busy show today, a lot to talk about. Um, so we're just going to jump right into it. So what we're going to be covering today, first we're going to be talking about um, all of the special elections that are happening um, in November. So of course beyond the New Jersey and Virginia gubernatorial races, which you know, how many more times can we talk about the Virginia and New Jersey gubernatorial races? But beyond those, we've got a couple special elections to talk about. Um, so we're going to get into that. Uh, we're going to be talking about the climate fight that's currently happening on the Hill and what's being done kind of throughout um, the Hill and also um, within the White House on um, on climate. My, my intern Grace is then going to be coming in. She's going to be talking to us about um, some issues that have been happening with immigration and on the border. Um, so I'm very excited to have her in later today. And then last but not least, we're going to be talking about Paris Hilton on the Hill this week, uh, what she was advocating for and just how fabulous it was to have Paris Hilton on the Hill. Paris Hilton, if what one might say. I didn't make up, I didn't come up with that. Someone else came up with that on Twitter, but still very fabulous. Um, so without further ado, we're just going to jump right into it. So the first thing again that we're going to be talking about is the 2021 congressional special elections. So all these races are happening because um, there was some kind of issue with the candidate, either the candidate retired or passed away um, or some other kind of extenuating circumstances that just meant that um, there needed to be another candidate to take their place or another race to happen. So the first race that I'm going to talk about is the Florida 20th Congressional District. Um, and this race is to replace Alcee Hastings, who's a Democrat and he died of pancreatic cancer in April. Um, and actually this race that's happening in November is a primary election and then the general election actually isn't going to be held until January, unlike all of the other special elections where this is the general election, which is what typically happens in um, in November, which is like moderately confusing, but it is Florida. So what do you really expect? Of course, Florida is going to be difficult and confusing for us, but quesera. Um, so the Florida 20th district is pretty interesting. It stretches from Broward to Palm Beach County, and it encompasses um, many majority black areas near cities like Fort Lauderdale and West Palm Beach. It's actually 99% urban, and it's more than 50% black. And the PVI for the district is D plus 31. So this race is not going to mess with the balance, balance of Congress in any way. A Democrat is going to win. It's really kind of a foregone conclusion. The What we're trying to figure out now, though, is what Democrat is going to win. And it's a pretty busy field. Um, and so it's it's kind of gonna be interesting to see with, there's also not a lot of polling that's been done that I'm gonna talk about later. Um, and so it's, it's less about is the Democrat or the Republican gonna win, but more about which Democratic candidate is going to win the primary and thus um, kind of be the new representative for the district. So Elsie Hastings is a pretty interesting dude. Um, he served in Congress. Uh, he was in the 23rd district from 1993 to 2013. And then after redistricting, he served in the 20th district from 2013 to 2021. Very entrenched um, Florida Democrat. He, um, I, I'm not sure exactly what his position was. I think he was like the chairman of the Florida congressional delegation, um, a very, very involved um, member of Congress. He also, as a sidebar, which is unimportant to the rest of this conversation, was a very interesting guy. Um, if you have some time, do a little Google Google research on him. He um, was impeached when he was serving on the uh, like the Florida um, courts. He um, there was some like 
nepotism claims he was also at one point he was the least rich member of congress like he was several million dollars in debt which again it, it has nothing to do with this election i just kind of enjoyed reading about him um because again florida politics it's like it's like new york city politics and chicago politics it's always going to be interesting to see uh which candidates are the ones that are that are doing really well but Regardless of all of that, getting back into the election, um, again, things aren't really going to, um, whatever the results of this election, it's really not going to matter because, again, it is a, a very deep, deep blue district. Um, but again, when this last polling was done, 29% of likely Democratic voters were undecided, um, but Broward County Commissioner Dale Holness has had the next highest share of support at 17%, and he was actually endorsed by the son of Elsie Hastings, which is pretty con pretty considerable. It's actually, there's another race similar where a, a, um, a family member of the candidate got, of the original candidate got involved in that kind of, um, uh, that, that changed the, the balance of kind of the, the race there. Um, but behind Dave, Dale, Dale Holness, excuse me, I think I might have said Dave the first time too, uh, Broward County Commissioner Barbara Sharif is at 14%, and then State Rep um, Amari Hardy is at 10%. And then there's a lot of candidates that are polling under 10%, including State Senator Perry Thurston, healthcare CEO, um, I'm going to mess up these names, and I do apologize in advance. Um, Sheila Cherifalus um, McCormick, um, uh, another Palm Beach County Commissioner Priscilla Taylor, uh, State Rep Bobby DuBose, Matt Boswell, and Emmanuel Morell are all polling under 10%. Um, Sheila was actually endorsed by Marianne Williamson, which is great. Love Marianne. Um, if you don't remember Marianne Williamson, of course, she was the uh, kind of out of left field presidential candidate. Um, if you just look at her on YouTube, I'm sure you'll see some of her greatest hits. She is like a motivational speaker. Her Twitter is also fabulous. This is another sidebar, but her Twitter is fabulous. She um, really likes to tweet out pictures of pretty birds and then just like talk about how pretty the birds are. And you know, Twitter is such a cesspool that sometimes you need that stuff on your feed. So I'll, I'll take it and I'll appreciate it. Um, and then she also lost against Elsie Hastings in the 2020 Democratic primary by a pretty substantial margin. She lost, Elsie uh, uh, Hastings won 69.3% of the vote and Sheila got 30.7% of the vote. So she did get beat pretty considerably, although I am surprised that she isn't kind of polling better now because um, you would think that she was, you know, kind of one of the front runners um, under the, the incumbent uh, in 2020. You'd think that she'd kind of have a little bit more like name recognition. But I think that the endorsement from, you know, the son of, of the deceased congressman probably was was pretty considerable in um, changing that dynamic there. Again, it's really not the best polling. Um, it's it's not super recent. It's not super helpful, but take it as you will. Um, and, and again, they're just not doing a lot of polling for these races because they are pretty safe. Um, the, then the Republican primary, which of course, as we said, doesn't matter at all, but it is kind of important to talk about. There are two candidates declared, uh, Jason Mariner, who is a quote business owner. We don't really know what kind of business he owns, but regardless. And then J Greg Musselwhite, um, who is a welding inspector, which I think is a great job. I'd like to be a welding inspector. Uh, he actually ran against Alcee Hastings in the general election in 2020, and he lost 78.7% to 21.3% of the vote, which is a pretty substantial um, electoral whacking, I would say. He is a like a build-the-wall, you know, immigration-focused Republican. Um, 
So again, like he was never going to win that race in the first place, but he, he certainly did give it a try. He certainly did give it a try, but I, I can only assume that Greg is going to win that primary. Um, but again, um, there's just like so few Republicans in the district that it doesn't even matter, but here we are. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to give him, give him a, a, the old college try and see how he does this time around. Um, they really are. There's like no polling that's being done on, on the Republican primary. I think just because uh, all of the pollsters are like, why would we spend money on this racer? Nothing is really going to change regardless. Um, so that's kind of the first race that's, that's to look at. Um, of course, we're not going to know the winner of that race until, um, January because this is only the primary and there's also a bunch of like third party candidates um, and like not affiliated candidates who are running um, so th- there there might be some extra factors in there but again likely not it's a, whoever win the dem- wins the Democratic primary is likely going to win the next race I want to talk about is Ohio 11 and this is an interesting seat because it used to be represented by Marsha Fudge who got called up to be the HUD secretary it's another very solidly Democratic seat. Um, Fudge won her re-election with at least 79% of the vote from the time she served between 2008 and 2021. Um, and it's actually the only district in Ohio where black residents make up the majority. It's 100% urban, and again, it's D plus 30. So the Democrat is going to win. Um, but the interesting thing about this race is not so much the general election, but actually the primary that happened over the summer. And this was... Um, the, the, the Democratic candidate who's running is, not to um, give spoilers, but it is reality, uh, Chantel Brown is the Democrat. She's running against um, the Republican Laverne Gore. And the Democratic primary was Chantel Brown beating out Nita Turner. And it was a fairly controversial race. Um, maybe not controversial, maybe that's the wrong word, but it was a, a talked about race. Um, maybe this was maybe it was only talked about on Twitter and I'm just on a side of Twitter that's talking a lot about Ohio special election primaries but case um, so Nina Turner was a fairly controversial figure she was very very progressive um, if she was elected she would have been uh, you know a new member of the squad um, this you know the seat was solidly democratic so they thought okay this is gonna be a great opportunity for another progressive to win a seat unfortunately it did not come to pass um, the Hill, there was a, a journalist from The Hill, this is a quote that says, this has become a proxy battle for the Democratic Party establishment and national progressives. So much like we talked about um, last week with the Virginia gubernatorial race being a proxy battle between, you know, just Biden and Trump. This was very much a, a post-2020 general election. Are Democrat, broadly Democratic voters supporting moderates or supporting progressives and basically what what ended up happening was like by a pretty good margin because there was like five or six different candidates in the in the race democrats in this very very deep blue district did decide to continue to support um more moderate democrats um which is which is very very important for um, moderate Democrats in Congress to kind of have more leverage um, and also more moderate candidates in general just have more leverage over their races. If a progressive tries to get involved, they can clearly point to this race and say, well, you know, we, we're we um, only a marginally Democratic district. If a deep, deep Democratic district can't even elect a progressive, what's to say that a progressive is going to win here? Um, so I think that's it's pretty important for um kind of both groups. I think the progressives really, really wanted this as a win. And I think that uh, a lot of progressives did think that it was going to be a win. So I think they were pretty disappointed when it didn't work out that way. Um, 
But regardless, Chantal Brown's likely going to win this race. Um, and she, she's just going to continue to be, I think, a good rank-and-file member of the Democratic Party. Um, another interesting piece of this, actually, was that um, Chantal Brown was endorsed both by Hillary Clinton and by the Congressional Black Caucus's PAC, which is very interesting because both Chantel Brown and Nina Turner are both black women. Um, so very interesting to see that the Congressional Black Caucus is is more in support of those moderate candidates. Um, I, I don't I don't I don't know what, how that speaks to like the general politics of the caucus, but it is interesting to see. I think maybe they're they are focused very much on electability um, when they could choose between two black female candidates. They did choose to choose. They did choose to support the more moderate one, and I think that was because the the district is is majority black. Um, I I think that that probably was a big pull in that direction as well. I think Hillary's endorsement as well. I think that that establishment side of the party really pushed a lot of voters over to Chantel Brown. Um, so the, the that's kind of the primary election again that happened over the summer. The general election again is not going to be all that interesting. Um, Laverne Gore actually lost to March Fudge in 2020, 80.1% to 19.9%. So it's going to be similar margins. It's it's not going to be a particularly competitive race. But again, if um, Nina Turner had won, it probably wouldn't have been wouldn't have been a competitive race either. Um, which I suppose is neither neither here nor there. Although again, in in a you know, where I grew up in, in New Jersey 11, um, a, a deeply progressive candidate would never have even come close. And those margins do not look the same. We do have a Democratic um, representative, but she's winning by like between five and 10 points. Like she's just, there's no way that a progressive candidate could actually do that well. Regardless, um, that's kind of how that is shaping up. Um, again, kind of just another rank and file Democratic seat. The interesting thing there as well is that um, the, the, Marsha Fudge got pulled up and to be HUD secretary, and that was such a safe um, Democratic seat that they don't have to worry about, like, there being a, a battle. Like, it would, they don't have to worry about it being a battleground seat, which is actually pretty interesting um, because maybe Biden is only pulling up the people that, pulling up the people into the executive branch that he knows aren't going to cause any issues with the balance of Congress. Um, and you could probably see that also by the fact that he didn't pull many senators up to be um, part of the executive branch because he knew that he didn't want to have a Senate battle um, that was going to mess with that very like slim majority in both the House and the Senate. So we'll see if um, we'll see after midterms and we'll see if Biden gets a second term and, and margins are slightly larger if he does start pulling in people to the executive branch that are in slightly more vulnerable seats. But that's also a side note neither here nor there for right now. Um, the last big seat that I want to talk about right now um, is Ohio 15. So this actually is the opposite of what we talked about. It's a little bit more marginal, and it is actually a Republican seat. So it's a uh, 60% rural, 40% urban, 90% white, and then the PVI is R plus 9. Uh, and this race is actually, it's Allison Russo, who's the Democrat, versus Mike Carey, who's the Republican. And the seat was left vacant by Steve Stivers, who was also Republican. He left his seat to become the president and CEO of the Ohio Chamber of Congress. Ch Chamber of Commerce, not the Chamber of Congress. Um... That's confusing because he left his job in Congress to join the Chamber of Commerce. But anyway, <laughs> so the the both the the Democratic primary was pretty much whatever uh, Alison Russo won with like 80 percent of the vote. But the Republican primary is pretty crowded. Kerry won pretty handily. He got like 30 percent of the vote when the next largest vote getter got about 13. 
Um, but it was pretty interesting because he was endorsed by Donald Trump, and that was the only Trump endorsement I've seen for a candidate so far. Um, but Steve Stivers, who again was the the incumbent who retired, actually didn't endorse Kerry during the general election. He had, or yeah, during the primary election, he actually endorsed Jeff Larue, who was a Ohio House representative. He only came in uh, second with again thirteen point three percent of the vote in comparison to um, around thirty percent that Kerry got, which is pretty interesting. I, I haven't didn't look too much into kind of what those politics look like. Um, but I guess Steve Stiver wasn't the most influential uh, Republican member of Congress or the most influential Republican in the district because um, his endorsement did not lead to his chosen candidate winning the race. Um, so the, the it's a likely R seat. It's probably not going to move anywhere. Um, but the last polling had Kerry at 50% and Russo at 39%. So again, an R plus nine seat means that like, Theoretically, something crazy could happen um, and a Democrat could win big. Um, but I think just because because of the Virginia gubernatorial race, like the, the, the Democratic establishment has not been spending that much time focusing on these special elections. I think if they did have any more like a bandwidth after Virginia and New Jersey, they would be going crazy in Ohio 15. They'd be funneling in every single resource they have into this district and they tried to pull off some like crazy seat flip. Um, but they, they they were not, and so it's not, you know, it's not going to happen. Um, and then again, there's a lot of other, like, random special elections that happened. Um, there was a special election to create a special delegation to the U.S. Senate from Puerto Rico that was held in May. So it's not, like, officially part of the November special election, but I'm counting it. Um, there's also the Louisiana 2. Um, Troy Carter is a Democrat, defeated Karen Peterson, also a Democrat, uh, in a special election, which re- which occurred um, due to Cedric Richmond's retirement from the House. And Richmond was pulled to serve as a senior advisor to the president and then a director of White House Office of Public Engagement. That was another safe Democratic district. And that race actually was, it was like a jungle primary again. So it was three or four prominent Democrats and then some Republicans and independents and libertarians and whatnot. Um, and then it was just whoever kind of had the highest um, vote count won the race um so that was kind of interesting again that was another safe democratic district where the incumbent was pulled into the executive branch um there aren't any like marginal districts where this happened um there's also the louisiana fifth district where julia letlow won the special primary election on march 20th that was left vacant um because of um former representative luke letlow's death who died because of covid like very um very quickly after election day, which is very upsetting. Um, but Julia Letlow is actually um, Luke Letlow's widow. So she ran and she was the largest vote getter. Um, and it was a nonpartisan primary election, just basically another jungle primary and beat out a kind of prominent Dem, um, Democrat Candy Kristoff. And so that, that margins were pretty large too. Um, I think it's pretty hard to um, <laughs> vote out the the widow of the of the incumbent who had just passed away. Um, so that was just another interesting race with another family member being involved. Uh, there's the New Mexico first district where Melanie Ann Stansbury defeated Mark Moores. Um, Stansbury was a Democrat. Mark Moores is a Republican. That was a special election over the summer. Again, following Deb Holland's confirmation as secretary of the interior. 
again, another safe Democratic seat where the incumbent was pulled up to um, be part of the executive branch. So um, that's Deb Holland's seat in New Mexico that now belongs to somebody else. And then last but not least, um, just another like random special election was the Texas 6th District in which um, Jake Elsey, Republican, defeated Susan Wright, another Republican in a special election over the summer. Again, all of these are pretty safe seats. Um, if there was anything particularly like controversial that was happening in those races, there would have been a lot more attention on it. But again, Virginia is just sucking the air and sucking the life out of any other race that could possibly re- be receiving attention right now. Unfortunate, but it is it is the reality of our world that Virginia gubernatorial race is the only thing that uh, election election worlds will be looking at for the next eight days at least uh all of these poor special elections just left to the wayside absolutely unfortunate because i i would like to fight for ohio 11 i think that there's something that could be done uh, not ohio 11 ohio 15 excuse me you know r plus nine is nothing d plus 30 that's different there's nothing that's going to happen in a d plus 30 district that would be that would take like a feat of just like absolute insanity r plus nine that's not that bad there's there's Democrats that are winning in, in R plus five districts. That's only like a couple extra points. I don't know. But anyway, it's 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 too late, unfortunately, for us to do anything about Ohio 15. Maybe I'll post a, a phone bank link uh, when I post all these resources, all the resources and Spotify link for the show tomorrow. Um, but it's 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 not going to happen for poor Allison Russo. And I wanted to try again when there's more air for another election to focus on. But with that, that's all I want to talk about, those special elections. Um, pretty interesting, kind of, the, the, the way that all that is has worked out. Um, and, but again, the balance of Congress is not going to change because of these special elections. It would be pretty wild if it did, but we are not at that point quite yet. So uh, the next thing I want to talk about is climate change. Very exciting and upsetting, and maybe we'll send you into... Um, uh, just like an actual panic, but hopefully not. So the, 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 the current sticking point on the reconciliation battle is climate. There's been a lot of conversation over the last like week and a half about what climate provisions are actually going to be included in the reconciliation bill, what's not going to be included. Um, over the weekend, um, Biden met with Manchin and Schumer um, actually at his home in Wilmington, Delaware, um, to, this is a quote from the New York Times, I believe, quote, to iron out crucial spending and tax provisions as they race to wrap up their expansive social safety net legislation before his appearance at a UN climate summit next week. Um, so Biden invited dear Manchin to his home and said, get it together get it together. We've got places to go. We've got things to do. We've got people to see. We need something to show for it. Please, like, come on. Um, so basically was like, we need to, we need to figure something out. Um, Biden clearly wants to appear to be doing some really good work on climate so he can bring that to the rest of the international community because he needs something to, to show for, um, his administration on the, on the world stage. The, the, the whole Build Back Better idea, obviously that was a promise to, you know, voters, to domestic voters about, um, you know, being being better on social issues, being better on COVID, being better on these things to, to kind of come back from the last four years of Donald Trump. But it also in a large way was a promise to the international community that um, 
America was going to come back to the negotiating table, come back to the world stage on so many important issues like immigration, um, like climate change, where, um, you know, Donald Trump had left the Paris Accords kind of immediately after after coming into office. Really, um, so many different ways that um, Donald Trump just did not want to be involved in the world community at all. Um so he's basically saying, we're building back better. We are coming back to the world stage. We're coming back to the negotiating table. And uh, to not have anything to show for the, the issue of climate change and to go to this climate summit where he clearly was planning on saying, look at this big bill that we just passed. Look at all of these different provisions that we are going to have in the United States. What can you guys do for climate change? Um, especially trying to... Um, you know, ask big powers like China and Russia to really take a big stand against climate change. He can't He can't feasibly ask anybody to do anything when the United States government isn't putting in their own fair share. You know, the United States is, I, I talked with this, I think, last semester, but the United States is the leader of the free world. Um, and, you know, they, they want to be these like big global leaders in all these issues. But if they're not the ones taking a stand on these issues in the first place, how can they expect to be to be leaders to anyone else? Um, and that's really important, uh, especially because, you know, America's response to climate change is literally being held up by one senator, um, one senator who is in the pocket of big coal. Um, and so that's obviously not a good look for the United States response. Um, and so it's clear that like the United States has very little legitimacy on these, on this issue. And I think China and Russia and a lot of the other big players are definitely going to kind of call them out on that because it's clear that the U S is dragging their feet and anything that they do get done is not going to become, be not going to be because of some like great moral superiority, um, over, uh, other countries. It's going to be because they, they begged and screamed and you know, pled and clawed uh, to actually get anything done on climate change. Um, but the the interesting thing with, so the legislation as it stands right now, um, the, the, oh, before I get into that, the other important thing with um, the Biden administration is not only do they need a win to provide some legitimacy to their, um, to like the world stage, they also need a big win before the New Jersey and Virginia gubernatorial races. Guys, only one more week of talking about Virginia, and then we can go back to ignoring Virginia as as it is meant to be. Sorry to people from Virginia. I just don't want to keep talking about you. <laughs> um, so he uh, wants a really big win before New Jersey and Virginia races. He needs to show that, like, because again, as we talked about over and over and over again, the Virginia gubernatorial race is just a proxy battle between Biden and Trump. Biden wants to say, look, look, we're making good on our campaign promises. We're doing what we need to do. We um, are going to like continue doing all of this great work. Look at all this great work we're doing. Beyond that, um, the, a lot of there's some several transportation programs and some other programs that if they don't get this bill done in the next couple of days, those um, programs are going to collapse and that's going to look even worse for um, the Biden administration. Not only will they not have accomplished like a major goal for the international community and for their domestic policy, they're also going to have like an explicit failure and an explicit like breakdown of a program, which is not what they want at all. So Joe Biden was like, Senator Manchin, let's talk. Um, because Manchin is currently the main obstacle in 
um, sweeping climate legislation that pretty much everyone else in the world wants and every single Democrat in Congress wants. Because um, the legislation is certain, currently set to include um, beyond climate provisions. It's also set to include one-year extension of payments to most families with children, pandemic relief, increasing funding for Pell Grants, affordable housing, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then um, a tax incentives for clean energy. That was that, that was that original program. And Joe Manchin said, that's not good for me. I'm actually going to rewrite it. Um, and he is... Uh, maybe this is my own opinion because he is transparent with all of the money that he gets from Big Coal, but I just don't like that he gets any money from Big Coal. Um, but he is a senator from West Virginia. He has he owns stock valued at one million and five million dollars in Enter Systems Incorporated, which is a coal brokerage firm which he founded and then he gave to his son, which he currently runs. Um, and Manchin actually made like over five hundred dollars from the firm last year beyond the stocks. So, which, which gives him something of an incentive to keep kind of focusing on the needs of big coal and big oil. Um, and he wants to rewrite that climate portion of the budget to keep, quote, natural gas flowing to power plants. Um, the, the mechanism that currently exists in the bill is a $150 million program that's designed to replace most of the nation's coal and gas power with renewables. It's called the Clean Electricity Performance Program. And he very much just wants to break that down um, and replace it with other programs that are continued to support big coal and big oil. Um, that's not the best thing for the environment, I would say. Um, and so there's there's definitely a big question there of should people who are making money explicitly off of the issue um, be the ones who are um, legislating on it? Should Should people who are making money from coal and oil lobbyists be the ones legislating on coal and oil usage? I would say no, but then that goes to the age-old question of money and politics. How do we get rid of it? What do we do with money and politics in general? Um, that's, a, that's a really big question. Um, and it's, the, the, the really, the thing is, like, as, as long as there is, like, money in politics and as long as lobbyists have as strong of a control over um, government as they do now, our government's never really going to, to take a stand um, on any of these big issues because they're too nervous about it. They, the, the power of the government to actually make real substantial change has just been completely kneecapped, um, which, is, which is an issue. And then what is the solution? Grassroots activism or, or organizations like Sunrise um, just going to be like the only way that we get any kind of substantial climate action? Is it like literally going to take five teenagers doing a hunger strike outside of the White House, which there are people doing over the weekend? Uh, is that what it's going to take to actually get real change from Congress? Is it a total upheaval of the system? Is it completely banning any money from politics and uh, kind of creating systems in which lobbyists are just like not allowed to exist anymore? Like, is that the way we do it? And how do we actually get around to doing that? Um, and it's it's definitely upsetting that that climate legislation, even though it is like broadly very, very popular, is just not going to exist in this final piece of legislation. It makes us look bad on the world stage. It makes the Democrats look incompetent on the um, uh, domestic stage. It's just not really that great for um, anyone involved. But that's kind of that's kind of where that stands climate wise. I, I really hope that um, the final bill does allow us to to kind of make more movement on um, different issues. We'll see how it goes. We don't have the final piece of legislation yet. It's we're still working on it. But that's kind of all I wanted to say about that climate fight. 
as after um, Biden makes his statements on uh, at this climate summit this week, we're going to have more of a kind of a say on 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 how he is going to reframe all these different issues um, and kind of reframe and, and, and show the world's community that the American people are back at the at, at the negotiating table. And I see how he spins everything that's happened in the last several weeks with kind of his inability to get Congress together and get them to kind of work together on these different issues. But that's all I wanted to say on that. Without further ado, now we're going to get into our third story, which is my intern Grace is coming in to talk to us about um, some immigration issues and some abusive migrants that have been happening on the Mexico-United States border. So without further ado, I'm going to excuse this terrible sound of the mic moving over, but I'm going to pass along to Grace. Awesome. Thank you, Emily. Um, so what I wanted to talk about today is um, some new documents that were just obtained by the Human Rights Watch. Um, these documents were obtained on September 24th um, from the Department of Homeland Security, um, but just recently they were publicized by the New York Times um, and brought to light. Um, and these documents they, they included some really horrific abuse um, and misconduct towards asylum seekers on the U.S.-Mexico border. Some of this mistreatment um, of migrants was sexual, physical, and also verbal. Um, there were also some reports of neglect, such as uh, refusing water and medical and dental care. Um, one quote that um, an asylum seeker said in the report was that they... Um, when I say they, I mean Border Patrol officers. They treat you as if you are worthless, like you are not human. If we laid down and didn't get up quickly, they would kick us with their feet. And they told us that we gave birth to rats. And when we were eating, if crumbs would fall, they would say we look like rats. So um, obviously some really uh, you know, disgusting language being used here. Um, one really important thing to note before I go on is that when the Department of Homeland Security release these documents, almost all the important identifying information of both the people who um, did these crimes as well as the victims was redacted. Um, so names, dates, locations, and nationalities were all redacted, which made it pretty difficult for anyone to, you know, really get info on what is happening here. But um, just to get into some little history in terms of uh, the Department of Homeland Security and in their ongoing reputation with, you know, the lack of, of migrant rights. Uh, these, these new accounts are honestly not surprising, at least to me, um, because there's just overwhelming evidence from both former employees, um, current employees, government officials, and, you know, um, even, you know, regular citizens that U.S. Customs and Border Protection continues to just be completely uh, negligent in terms of training officers. Um, in 2019, 47% of Customs and Border Protection employees surveyed that officials were not held accountable for their actions. A lot of uh, border officials reported that they felt it was unlikely that DHS would even respond to these new reports. Um, and then in general, just xenophobic, dehumanizing, and racist behavior was always uh, considered part of the DHS culture. Um, compliance was not regularly enforced. Um, and horrifyingly enough, uh, Border Patrol employees stated that they weren't even sure of where or how 
to report accounts of migrant abuse, which is really shocking to me just considering the amount of um, accounts that we saw in this new report. Um, so um, the Human Rights Watch inquired DHS on both September 28th and October 12th for more information regarding these accounts. DHS did not respond to either request, which I think is um, really interesting uh, and, and like I said, somewhat unsurprising. A lot of the reports were filed primarily during the Trump presidency, but um, I think it's safe to say that they were met publicly with more concern now because of the photos released on September 21st. Um, I'm sure everyone, you know, has seen them. Um, Border Patrol's, Border Patrol agents on horseback seemingly whipping Haitian migrants, and that was met with a lot of public outrage, um, both from, you know, citizens like myself um, and also government officials. The new secretary um, of the Department of Homeland Security, Mayorkas, um, he called the events troubling and promised to release the outcome of the investigation that the DHS um, began to examine this behavior in days, not weeks. Um, but no such results have actually been published and it's been over a month now, um, which is, I think, explains a lot in terms of uh, how the, you know, the White House has been responding to some of these things. Um, and it's just, it's just really contradictory because, you know, there's this quote from the Secretary Mayorkas who, you know, he's saying, we don't tolerate any mistreatment or abuse of migrants, period. We are horrified to see the images, but then we just see a complete lack of prioritization in terms of actually following through with these, um, you know, investigations, both in terms of the previous photo that we saw of the um, Haitian migrants and also with this most recent report that was recently uh, put out to the public. Um, but then in terms of a, you know, government response for this um, new Human Rights Watch report, Officials under um, Mayorkas are supposedly conducting yet another internal review of contact, uh, conduct to locate the prejudice and excessive use of force. Um, and the White House is also in support of this investigation. Um, but it was extremely difficult to extract any sort of specific information in terms of both timeline, um, you know, goals. There's almost, there's zero transparency in terms of the Biden administration and, you know, the Department of Homeland Security in terms of where they're at with this. I mean, considering that they haven't even released the results of the last investigation, it's it's kind of extremely disorganized. Um, and then something really important to note is that President Biden, Vice President Harris, and Press Secretary um, Jen Psaki have really all been skirting away from the question um, in recent uh, White House briefings, Jen Psaki, when, when asked if, you know, what was going on at the border, you know, what, what the president has to say about it, she basically told the reporter to refer to the Department of Homeland Security um, and, and basically refused to answer the question. And then we've seen multiple instances of Biden and Harris um, actively not visiting the border when they said they would. So there's a real lack of um, prioritization here. Um, and something super important to note, I think in terms of just looking at these new 
policies under the Biden administration in comparison with the Trump administration is that the new secretary, Mayorkas, and the Biden admin have been using deterrence as their primary strategy for controlling the recent surge in border crossings. Um, just for some context there, there's a backlog of almost one million requests for asylum um, that are just not getting granted, not going forward. Um, we've seen a huge increase in immigration ever since Biden took office, but um, it began to spike in around August. So um, because of that, despite promising this very anti-Trump, um, anti-xenophobia idea in terms of um, immigration reform in his campaign, the Biden administration has totally been going back to the more Trump-like policies in terms of controlling this um, influx in, in migrants. And uh, it just really contradicts their, their whole policy of a fair, um, a fair process of receiving asylum. And people are getting turned away despite, you know, reporting extreme danger in their, in their home countries. Um, and, and I think that's just really important to think about in terms of both the complete lack of government response with these um, reports just recently uh, leaked and also as a whole where the Biden administration uh, is, is shining light and where they're completely keeping things in the dark. So that's about um, all I wanted to say for just a bit of a summary. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much for that really, really good, robust summary. I know that it was... Um, interesting to to hear about the the difference between the the Trump administration the Biden administration and their responses i also think just kind of in general the the backlog of almost a million requests for asylum not only is that probably on the border but also probably with afghanistan and and the middle east just how how bad the immigration system is in the united states but i did just want to have a little bit of a conversation ask you some questions about um some different facets of this conversation so you met, you talked a lot about the governmental response mm -hmm. to um this issue but i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the non-governmental response like what some different ad advocacy and interest groups have been have been saying about this issue sure sure so um you know in terms of you know uh pro-immigrant groups or uh, people who are prioritizing uh, civil rights for all, such as the ACLU, um, there's there's a lot of anger towards the Biden administration here. Um, I think part of that is the fact that there's a, a, like I said, a pretty abrupt turnaround in terms of what policy they're creating for the, um, admit. well, you could call it a crisis, I would call it a crisis, immigration crisis. Um, and one facet of that is that uh, in November, Biden is, is planning on making this order. It's basically saying migrants stay home. Um, we've, I'm sure we've all seen that uh, video of Kamala Harris saying, do not come. Um, and so a lot, of, a lot of people are really mad about that because, um, you know, it, part of a key component of Biden's campaign was saying the asylum process will be, become more fair. We're going to stop doing these ICE raids. We're going to stop separating families from each other and um, and you know that happened in the beginning and and some could say that that's perhaps why there's such a massive influx in in immigration because Biden has cut down with these more drastic measures um, but you know then you look at the other side in terms of anti-immigrant groups um, and more conservative groups and 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 they're also blaming Biden because uh, they think that his initial you know, drawback of, of 
immigration policy allowed too many people to get here and too many people to want to come here and and supposedly that's why this abuse is happening i in all honesty i don't see why there has to be a connection between abuse and an increase in migrants i think that it it seems completely fair to me that uh more migrants could come and they just wouldn't have to get harmed at the border but um unfortunately that speaks a lot to i think the culture of the you know border protections office and, and that whole thing yeah absolutely i think i mean you make a really good point people have the right to to move around this world without threat of being harmed i think it's a really really important point that we definitely don't right that the maybe the united states isn't that good at grasping but the one last question i want to ask you before we wrap this segment up um so i've noticed and i know you've noticed that this issue this time around at least has gotten very little attention in the press um very much like just fleetingly mentioned it was like 24 hours like those pictures were horrible and it was very much in the press out of the press very quickly and i was wondering if you would talk a little bit about why um this time around like the media just had like such a brief attention span with with this particular case of of migrant abuse yeah i'm um you know it's a really good question it's something that i wish i knew the full answer to i it's it's part of what makes this whole issue so infuriating to me um but i think one of the main things i would say i'm actually kind of quoting my brother here as i was talking (laughs) to him about this the other day and because um, I, I talked to him about these new reports, and I was like, have you heard about this? You know, what do you think about this? And he was like, it all blends together. Like, I didn't hear about it, but it all blends together. I'm not surprised. And I was like, that's really sad, but you're right. And I think that that speaks so much to, like I said, the culture of, of Department of Homeland Security and honestly just how it's hard to put it into words, but I, I think that we all thought of the Biden administration as this kind of angelic anti-Trump uh, campaign. And I think that as much as I'd like to say that um, news publications are reporting everything with no bias, I, I do think that there's some amount of publications kind of stopping talking about these like issues because in the campaigns, Kamala or Harris and Biden both really talked about reform and that's not really what we're seeing now and things have mm-hmm. gotten more complex and I think that um, I, I don't know I don't know if, if they're scared to cover it or if there's just a huge lack of transparency and so they can't even like accurately cover these events but either way what the Biden administration is currently doing completely goes against what their promises were and I think because of that the media for whatever reason, is hesitant to cover it. Yeah, that's that's. I mean, I think that's a great analysis. I think it it also goes to show um, how important advocacy is, right? You can't just stop advocating for uh, an issue after your candidate wins because you have never know. You have to make sure that those candidates are sticking to those promises. Exactly. Um, and when they're not, this is especially like this isn't a an issue that has to be necessarily run through Congress. Mm-hmm. Like this is something that the Biden administration could handle like from the executive side. So it's not like you even have like Joe Manchin to deal with on exactly. this issue in particular. Um, so definitely very frustrating, but uh, uh, we will definitely continue to to push for that, that push with that advocacy and, and kind of hold our elected officials accountable. But Grace, thank you so much for that analysis. It was absolutely fabulous. So last thing I want to do with the last couple minutes is, um, Grace, I don't know if you, you paid attention to the story at all, um, is Paris Hilton on the Hill. 
Uh, uh, did you see this at all? Because it was fabulous. I, I saw a few TikToks about it. Hell yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so anyway, Paris Hilton was, was in D.C. this week. Um, she was meeting with lawmakers. This is also my insane political story of the week, although it's only moderately insane because she was actually there for a very good reason. Um, but she was there. Uh, she was in D.C. this week on the Hill meeting with lawmakers to discuss the, quote, troubled teen industry. Mm-hmm. Actually a very interesting topic. Um, there's, like, a lot of, like, wilderness camps um that that parents will send their children to if they think they're like out of control and it it's basically billed as like therapy um but it's actually torture i would say it's like not a very good place um so actually paris hilton was sent to the provo canyon school in utah had this like terrible experience got out realized it was a terrible experience and now is is very involved in the advocacy to um create a uh, basically a bill of rights for teenagers in these kind of care facilities which was honestly very interesting. I think that it's great that she was on the Hill doing all of this work. I think that it's this advocacy is very important. However, it is my insane political story of the week because there's nothing quite as jarring as logging onto Twitter and seeing a picture of Paris Hilton and Adam Schiff next to each other and then scrolling a little bit more and seeing a picture of Paris Hilton next to Mitt Romney. And it's just, it so really, true. it was, it just took me like right out of my body. Like I just ascended. It was so exciting to me. Um, she's great. She's fabulous. Um, and there's all these great videos of just like interns and like other yeah. members of like other Hill staffers just like seeing Paris Hilton around. Just being like, is that, is that Paris Hilton? Am I seeing things? Anyway, I think that's a great story. Um, and it's a very important topic and also goes to a common theme of Sheep Thrills, which is youth advocacy and the fact that we need more youth representation in uh, Congress and in our government in general, because this is a deeply, deeply important issue. And it's an issue that a lot of young people have been bringing up on the Internet for years and years and years. And it shouldn't take Paris Hilton coming to Congress and getting all of this media attention for these issues to actually be addressed in a substantial way. Um, But you also just have to think, like, how many more issues could we be addressing on a national scale if we attached it to some kind of famous name? And that's why I will never discount certain, like, certain celebrities who are coming out and speaking about different um, political issues, because that's hugely influential um, for a lot of reasons. It, it, It really, like, it amplifies different issues and you could be like, oh, well, they're just like fake. They just like want clout or whatever. Yeah. Well, if they're giving the issue clout and they're raised and they're getting donations and they're or if in this kind of situation, if they're like actually leading to like substantial policy change and like um, like bringing up all these important issues, like, of course, they can do whatever they want. They have their platform as long as they're using their platform for good and not evil. I'm all for it. But anyway. Really? I'll be posting on Instagram some of my favorite Paris Hilton pictures, but it really just, it brought me so much joy this week, seeing Paris Hilton in her, like, business casual, like, on the hill. Um, She's fabulous. And legislating is hot. And I love it. And I love her. Anyway, so that is all I want to talk about today. Thank you guys so much for tuning in again. Um, If you want to engage with the show on social media, follow on Instagram. It's uh, Sheep Thrills Radio. Follow on Twitter. It's Sheep Thrills GW. I'll be posting Spotify link for the show um, and all of the sources that me and Grace used in our research um, tomorrow on Instagram or the next day if I forget, which is totally possible. (laughs) I'm very well organized. The semester isn't kicking my butt at all. I'm I'm all together. Um, But anyway, that's all I want to say again. 
as I say every week, if you have ideas, suggestions, anything at all, feel free to DM me, um, send me an email. My email is like on all of my social medias. Let me know what you guys think about, about the show. Let me know if you want to see anything different. But with that, I am going to, um, oh, the other, the one last thing, make sure you are voting. I said, I said at the beginning and I'm going to say it at the end, eight days until election day in Virginia. Um, and New Jersey and all those special elections that I talked about um, earlier in the show. So if you have important elections, everyone has an election in their state, but if you have a big one, make sure you are voting. It's important. Um, Make your voices heard. It is your civic responsibility. But with that, I will see you guys next week, next Monday, 6 p.m. WRGW. Have a great rest of your week, and I will see you later.